welcome to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of the DevCom Podcast Series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. Being a car nerd myself, I'm very happy to welcome today's guest, Sean Rutland, CEO at Hutch, a game development studio focused on car-themed mobile games. Thank you for joining me today, Sean. Cool, no worries. <laughs> so, uh, Sean, it's a pleasure to have you here. Why don't you tell us a bit about uh, yourself and Hutch and, and what you do? Hutch has been running now for nine years. Um, the, the business itself came through um, a pretty interesting experience that we had uh, the founders, myself, with four other founders, with a pretty interesting experience at PlayStation, um, which was a wonderful company, um, making great product, um, incredible IP. And actually the studio itself was, was, a, was, a, was a really fun place to work and, and, and we worked with lots of great people, but getting a product off the ground was really hard. Um, and the, the five founders and I, uh, we shared a very similar, similar journey where the last three games that we worked on all got canceled over five years. And um, that oh, experience, wow. yeah, that that experience was 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 really tough. But at the time, I didn't realize what a blessing it was in terms of a learning experience. And um, you know, games get cancelled for good reasons. And like, we were not victims of of those games being cancelled. But um, the way they were cancelled, I think, could have been done better. Um, and actually, like, when you cancel a game, um, the team that was together that had all learnt to work together all those teams got changed every time. So that, that experience in itself was, yeah. was quite painful. Um, and also I could just see so much value being lost because when you're working with someone for a couple of years, you, you sort of learn the, the strengths and weaknesses and they learn yours and um, you build a sort of kind of harmony between, between people to figure out how to get things done. And, and, and all that stuff was kind of reset every time a game got canceled. So, so that experience in itself, I came out quite bitter and angry. Um, and I read something recently, actually, most airline businesses apparently get started from um, really disgruntled staff of other oh, really? airlines. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. there's there's some huge kind of hit rate of uh, new airlines that come from disgruntled disgruntled staff that build new airlines. Even though and, right um, now, I guess it's probably not the best time to start an airline, I would say. It's, no, it's, no. it's not the most solid business no, at the moment. But. No, definitely not. But I, but I actually think that's probably quite uh, symptomatic of the games business. Yeah where people, um, for right or wrong, go through an experience that they, they dislike and they, they move forward and they try and make a, a, a business or a studio that kind of corrects the ills that, that, that you've experienced in the past. So, so yeah, so Hutch was like an iteration of, of coming out of PlayStation. We worked on a game called Until Dawn that was then moved to another studio and um, we saw this sort of emerging mobile platform. Um, it was getting more and more... Um, more traction uh, in 2011. And then I think the iPhone 4 had 3D and we started playing around with that. Uh, we got some Unity licenses with with a couple of credit cards and, and we started the business. And um, within our first seven months, we launched a game. And, and after spending five years of not making anything, like I felt like, um, like, you know, in, in reviews where you see a game that, that says what format it was on, I felt like all my games were in PowerPoint. I never felt <laughs> like I, I'd ever yeah. left PowerPoint. I, I was either in Keynote or, or PowerPoint. So, um, so yeah, so launching a game was, was really important to us, a game that we believed in, a game that we loved. We launched a game called Smash Cops, and it made a million dollars in its first, I think, first six months. Um, and that really enabled us to 
really invest and sort of double down into the business. And before that, the, the business was really a function of fixing our CVs because we hadn't really finished any games for five years. And I tried to get a job at, I think, Mind Candy. Um, at the time, they had this, um, uh, the Mushy Monsters thing was going crazy and trying to get a job at us too. And, uh, and both the feedback was, was, man, you haven't finished a game in five years. What, you know, like your CV looks great, but you haven't actually done anything. So Hutch was really a, started off as an experiment to really just fix our CVs, but just do something we really believed in. Um, but then my experience, I'd been working in e-commerce for five years before I worked in games. And I understood the, the lifetime value to cost to acquire a customer conundrum from e-commerce days. And I could really see how Facebook gaming was, was fascinating. So from like 2005 to, to 2008, nine, I could really see how, how fascinating Facebook gaming was getting. Uh, and then so the emergence of mobile and how IAPs got launched on mobile and you could really see how freemium was gonna, gonna impact uh, mobile and distribution and, and user acquisition. So, I actually had a lot of experience in building games. I worked on Fable um, with Microsoft, but I'd also had a lot of experience working in e-commerce. So I kind of blended these two sort of assumptions I had around digital gaming and where this could go. And, um, and we started hiring not just game developers, but analysts and people in marketing and things like that. So we weren't a freemium studio. We were a bunch of AAA console guys moving into mobile, which was brutally hard because we thought we, we, you know, we, you think you know everything because you've just come from a really hard platform of making these big AAA budget games, twenty billion dollar budgets and stuff. And then you move into mobile, think, yeah, okay, this is going to be easier. But actually, it was very hard, and doing freemium was really hard in the first couple of years. But we we persisted and we kept to our. Uh, our values of like iterating quick and moving really quick. And every time we did that, we learned a lot quicker and we, we sort of stacked the learnings and, um, and the, and the sales eventually just kept stacking up and we grew, grew the studio to what it is today. to about, it's about hundred people. Um, and we should do about $70 million in revenue this year. So, um, so I'm really proud of what we've built and where we've come from. And, and I think and it can happens. be. I mean, nine years later, you know, it's uh, it shows that your move there was not wrong, and uh, that you yeah. have probably polished your CVs enough now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope I'll get a job after this. Yeah. Um, you want to leave? Yeah. Uh, sounds sounds like no, that. no, no. I mean, I mean, this is the weirdest thing when you build a business that you, um, you know, with your friends and you and you absolutely. It's quite crazy. You just become obsessed in it and it, you just live and breathe it and think about it every day and you do need a holiday from it. Um, but it is something I, I absolutely love. And I, I often wonder sometimes if I come across a bit cult-like with, with, with other staff because I'm so into it because that's all I've been doing for the last nine years. And I have to remind myself this is, this is their place of employment. This isn't some <laughs> sort of cult-like uh, situation for them. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really, really proud of it. Oh, that's it's really cool to hear. So the when we um, talked a while ago, you said that um, your your kind of tagline for Hutch is that you want to make games that people actually want to play and not just the games that you would want to make. Um, yeah. So uh, what does it mean for the games you you have in development and for new games uh, that you're creating? Uh, I mean, obviously you're not making games for somebody in a hierarchy, you're making making games for, for people out there. How do you make sure that when you come up with a new project, this actually happens? Yeah, so there's, there's a number of um, 
areas that that we that we utilize to help us make decisions quick and um, enable us to I think it's really hard when you're game creators and you've got a blank sheet of paper and you're like, right, let's go make a game. I've seen so many people with the situation. I was I was like this at Sony where it's like, right, go make a game, any game you want to make, blank sheet of paper, that's super hard. And actually the thing I love uh, that we've fallen into is um, the, the racing car market. And the thing that, that, that we're talking about making games for, um, for players, not just the games we want to make. That's about serving an audience. So we're entertainers. And we really have to think about that audience and and what what things they like and what things do they do they consume, what media do they watch, which music do they listen to. So we really have to get underneath the, the skin of petrol heads. Um, and that's the sort of core of it. And the way that we do it is we have we have I guess there's an there's enough petrol heads in the business, but I wouldn't say it's dominated by people that are absolutely passionate about cars but there's enough people in business that that really care about it and um and in particular john alpine uh who's a head of product he he's he's definitely a big picture when he goes to race days he he just loves the um the passion and the and the and the love of cars and he brings that into into his sort of influence into the games that we're making um, and then on the other side is we're game makers as well. So we're trying to, we, we look at the, the app store market and we look at what works really well. And we think if we applied an automotive lens to that game, could, could that be turned into a really authentic racing type experience? And actually quite often we go down that, that track and prototype it and actually it's just not good enough or it just doesn't work. It's just too, um, contrived. Um, but, but quite often we find something that works. So. When we did Formula One, it was quite, it was quite a risky um, gamble for us in terms of looking at the Golf Clash model um, and the success they had with that sort of fan, so that person likes golf or um, or betting or or competition. But could we model a strategic, a light strategic Formula One racing game into that model, and could we give it enough authenticity that actually relates to Formula One fans with 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 the IP and content? So that's where we start, and we within sort of six to eight weeks, we're actually testing the game in the market uh, under a secret app account. So it looks absolutely dead ugly. Six uh, to eight weeks. Well, that's quick. Yeah, yeah. So so it's barely functional, yeah. but it does work. And then we're just checking if the retention's good, if the number of races per day is good, and that for us is. Um, so what, what, what we learned in the past from, from many years of doing this is that we've worked in isolation for two and a half, three years, like we had at Sony, um, making the game we think is the right game for the player, and then finding out when you're soft launching that the retention is terrible. So like, why, why did we just spend the last two and a half years making this thing yeah. when actually we can find out if, if this game has any potential within sort of six to eight weeks? And, at, and actually that's a really liberating um, aspect for our for our team because they know they're working on something that has promise and it's mad as you go through that journey after six to eight weeks and you find a prototype that works and then you go oh wow like you know nine months later the retention has dropped even though the game has got better looking it's got more features and has a faster frame rate or something and like why has the retention dropped like that, that like everything you assume should make it better as something has made it worse 
So it's this really interesting iterative approach to just constantly learning from an audience. Um, and obviously learning about marketing as well, because the source of your players will make a huge difference to your attention. So, um, so it's been constantly engaged, uh, with, with the data, but also your gut and then, and then also just, um, working, working with the, working with the players. And recently we've been doing a lot with player councils. So, so sharing mm -hmm. our roadmaps with, with, with the players and getting, in, um, getting feedback from them. And that's been super insightful. Um, and Do you have like a about, formal group of uh, people that you invite to the studio sometimes that actually take part in to some extent? Yeah, in the I mean, we, 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 in, in fairness, we haven't done it physically, but we've done mm -hmm. it like on forums and, um, you know, I know there's a lot of studios that do this a hundred times better than we do, but but this is this is part of our journey in terms of uh, learning from that that sort of petrol head audience. And, and like top drives is a really sort of really core strategic collecting sort of racing game, and that audience is so passionate. So having them on board and having them help us sort of shape the roadmap, but then also us having the conviction to say actually we don't think that's right for you, we don't think that's right yeah. for the game, but having that dialogue um is a, just another tool to help the teams make games for players rather than just make games for ourselves and um and and we're not perfect i think sometimes we drift off and do the things that we think is just perfect for the for the player and then we find out later it's oh actually no that's not what they <laughs> wanted um and and you learn from it right so and you have to Absolutely. create an environment where where the team is uh not afraid to take risks, but the team's also not afraid to just talk about the, the mistakes they've made. And I think that's that's really important as well. Yeah, I find it interesting that you talk a lot about retention. I bet at your time when you worked on PlayStation games, you didn't talk much about retention at all. So I mean, the I, fact I, alone I, that you're talking about this means yeah. you, you know you you moved into an entirely different world, uh, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about retention pretty early on in our journey into mobile, but. Um, um, but I am absolutely fascinated. I'd love to know what retention uh, figures that, that console games get. And I suspect that the day one and day seven are pretty high yeah. because you've paid for a game. Um, but I'd really love to know what that sort of long-term um, curve looks like. I mean, I, I t tell you what, most companies actually don't, I don't want to say they don't care, too much about it but they don't track it that much i mean mm. honestly i work for a um console publisher myself right now and i come from the mobile space so my journey was um pretty much the opposite of yours you know been yeah i've been doing free to play mobile and, and online for 12 years and, and now work for uh a triple a AAA publisher and um i was shocked i would actually say to see how little insight there was into retention player churn and and yeah. you know what, what people do uh during their journey of playing a game uh, and i think that's something that um is going to be more and more relevant to console games as well as they all move into into games as a service but in the mobile space obviously you need to look at those numbers um, but i would agree with you that day one day seven retention for a console title is usually relatively high because people invested uh yeah. the 50 60 euros and and play the game yeah. and then you know they they play it for a while and maybe some of them stick around to the first dlc or the second dlc but usually a year or so or not even a year maybe half a year after initial launch nobody's is around you know yeah. for, for quite a while well i mean my own personal playing behavior completely changed uh when when mobile and the app store um, the ios app store really emerged for me because like i had bought so many games personally that i thought this is the game i should buy and it was marketed to me really well and I'd unwrap it and I'd play it for like a couple of days and I'd never go back to it. And it was just really, it was almost like this, 
insane sort of consumption model where yeah. I, I feel like if I want to be a gamer, I have to buy GTA five on, on, on launch date, right? So um, and and I sort of subscribed to that for many years. And I've got shelves full of console games I've never really played. Your pile of shame, yeah. I get yeah, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I just don't have the time to play them. Yeah. And that's why mobile for me was just so exciting because I can I can try games out, I can then start to invest in games if I really love them and it's just, it's a really it's a really um, for me it's a very compelling business. Yeah, and you're not alone with that. I mean a lot of people, including myself personally with my, my playing behavior, you know, we yeah. uh, I also moved into that. And I don't think that you only are a gamer when you play GTA five or a game like that. You know, there's mm. so many there's millions of gamers out there that don't see themselves as gamers, but they are. You know, they play on mobile yeah. and uh, you know if you know, some of my friends that play Candy Crush or some some casual, you know, they play they wouldn't yeah. say they are a gamer, but they are. You know, they yep. they sometimes play hours, you know. Yep, we've all got mothers or aunties or Absolutely. uncles that, that, that play candy, right? And it's um Absolutely. It's, my, uh, my wife's in level six thousand three hundred and something. I didn't even know they had that many levels, but hey, you know, it's the way it works. I doubt they'll run out. <laughs> it was funny for a while. I thought that King was always releasing new levels when she hit the le level cap. Right. Uh, it was like uh, usually it took like two three days, and you know that she had nothing to do, and then they, the new levels came out. But I don't know. It's it's just a belief I have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so uh, moving back to to Hutch and the games um, you built. So uh, how do you how did you build the company? when you I mean you said you came together with a couple of friends and and uh, it was I guess it was very important to you to not make the mistakes that uh, you felt others had made before when uh, they canceled games and, and didn't recognize the value of the teams being built so what did that mean for you and building your company in terms of the values you wanted to instill in your company and uh, and the, the way you you set up um, the environment for people yeah I think, I think early on what's interesting is you have this DNA or the sort of blueprint of what you've experienced in the past, but you ne we never really wrote it down and we never really expressed it, but we all felt it and knew it that like, if, if, for example, when we first started doing board meetings, we agreed with the board would never talk about design of games and board meetings, mm -hmm. right? And it was important that the team knew this, that we were going off to a secret meeting with some investors to say, hey, and then we'd come back with changes to the games. And, um, and that was, that was really instinctive. And I think that was inspired by the fact that when you work in a huge, um, multinational business like PlayStation, um, which, and I, I don't, I don't want to sound negative against PlayStation at all because they're, they, you know, they create amazing content and amazing games. Um, but there is something really challenging for people that work in the games teams that don't really know what's going on around them. And that's, that's really really hard so for us this this concept around radical transparency so we'd come back from the board meeting present to the whole team what was in the board pack we might have to take out one or two slides um, for sensitivity reasons around hr things like that but but we would show finances would show where the business was if, if, you know we'd, for many years we were not profitable for six years so mm. we were showing losses for six years when we were showing these board packs um and um, the reason for doing that is I really believe that digital businesses that um, unlock the people working on the product or the content, if they can be freed up to connect with the, with the player or the user without any management overhead at all, they can make great choices for that product if you've got the right people in that, yeah. in that team. 
but also if they are aware of what the business needs from a, a financial or staff growth or whatever, whatever you're trying to achieve as a business, if they've got all that information to hand, then you've actually, you should have quite an aligned team of knowing of where we're at right now, where we're going to, um, what our financial position is and the things that we need to try and achieve and all those, all those things should, should enable them to feel like they're making impact. Um, and if they're not making impact, how can they make impact? And, um, and you know, I, I can't think of a single like aha moment where sharing all this information and sharing all this data has had made a big change to a certain game. But I do know that the, that when it comes to the team, like there are no, um, we don't have like any sort of hidden agendas going on and the problems that we're trying to solve we've been quite open with, um, which creates lots of other problems as well. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever get uh, feedback from the team when you shared something that was maybe, you know, a little much. more critical that it was that it that they couldn't take it that it that they felt it was it was too much transparency or did you never experience yeah, that? I think um, I've heard I've I've heard of I've I've heard of teams doing that and I can see why that would be quite uncomfortable. So we never we never showed um, the slides we never showed was our cash balance in the in in the bank mm -hmm. and uh, there's like you don't need to stress people out about that. That can be. That, that could be quite rocky in the early stages of a business. Yeah, it's probably um, enough if you can't sleep. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that, that, that is definitely something we don't do. Um, but it, and it's really hard because when you start stacking up lots of cash, you just really want to show the team yeah, the bank balance. Yeah. Um, but but because we've never done that, we just we just you know we never sort of broke that rule. But um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of. It it going badly i think the, the most important thing is you never share sort of personal information about yeah, people um you never uh you don't really talk about all the sort of m a conversations that constantly go on um you just like you want people to be focused on making great games that help you make a great business so you're just trying to give as much information as you can to help them make choices around um around the games they're making so um And then also seeing like the, the, the coolest thing is when people do stuff, do an update and you can, you can immediately see an impact it has in mm. the business. That is, that is so cool. I remember, you know, working in big businesses and still not really knowing what the sales numbers were of, of like Fable when I worked there. And it's like, like it's, it's kind of shrouded in mystery. And it's like, <laughs> welcome what? to the club. I can, I have this problem right now. You know, I was, yeah. I came from an environment where, you know, I pretty much had the same approach of, uh, almost radical transparency and uh, shared whatever I could that was not harmful anyway. So obviously yeah. the same things that you were talking about uh, and every week uh, there was a town hall where we got together and I shared uh, all the info. And usually what you said when there was an update or something, you know, you immediately had news to share. Either you could share, well, it didn't work at all, you know, for whatever yeah. reason, you know, it's yeah. not what we expected. Or you could be totally hyped about it. But now we launch a new game, bring it out to, uh, the, to the platforms, and then for the next, I don't know, 30 days or so, you feel like you don't know nothing about what's yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. You know? Of course, you yeah. get some numbers here and there, but there's no, there's no like, uh, you know, central place where everybody looks at is like, yeah, cool, the numbers are going up. Um, and that's, yeah. that's definitely very different. Yeah. There's actually been a, actually one weird thing we've had. Um, and this isn't some sort of clever sales, sales pitch, but... Um, During COVID, we kept breaking sales records because of 
uh, lockdown and engagement numbers going up. And we do a weekly briefing where we talk about, okay, this week we broke another record, next week we broke it. And it actually became a bit, it became a bit strange. It was like, it's like every week we kept breaking sales records yeah. and, and we did get some feedback saying, do we have to talk about money all the time? Like, <laughs> can we, can we, can we talk about our other purpose in life, which is making great games? And yeah. um, I, I, I understood that, but I also needed people to remember that like, this business has been through such rocky times. That's what I want to like, say. I mean, the first six years of not making yeah. money, I mean, you must be incredibly happy if you break records yeah. and, and sell so much, uh, so much yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really hard when you're like, come on, man, I had six years of hell. Yeah. Like the, the valley of despair. Like, let, let us bask at at least like six weeks of doing really well. Well, so. I guess you shielded uh, your team well enough for six years that they didn't feel the need that you did to kind of, you know, share the well, good news so much. I, mean, I think that's the really important uh that's the, that's the job i have right which is yeah. to always have something to look forward to yeah. um for the team and for myself and for my investors everybody around me is always some new hope of something that you're working towards so when you're in that valley of despair you're like well this may be really bad right now but guess what we've got coming out we've got this new thing we've got this thesis around this idea this update we're going to do we're going to try and get featuring we're going to try and do ua and um there's always there's always something new coming and if you if you um if you let the i mean it's so challenging but if you let that sort of depressing like no money in the bank account stuff eat you up and and kill your motivation then like the team will feel it and i never i never sort of let let it beat me like yeah. that so um i always had we were always focused on something big coming down the track and um like you said i think you have to i mean otherwise uh you know yeah. you, you have nothing to 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 work for you know to yeah know you have no purpose to, right yeah exactly yeah, yeah you've, you've got to have a reason to to yeah. to think that you're going to get there so um and and actually the weirdest bit is when we were loss making we took more risks moved quicker and and it was exhilarating mm -hmm. because when you're loss making when you're in the red like, like if you fail at what you're about to do, you're still loss making. Yeah. But when, but when we hit like profitability, no one wants to go back to loss making. Exactly. So, so all of a sudden still... you start to become more careful and yeah, yeah, you don't yeah, want to change to... too much because it might, you know, not be the right yeah. thing for the, for the players out there. And maybe we could just keep it as it is because they like it like, like, like that and so on. Yeah. So I, I totally understand that. Yeah. But, but how you got there was by taking those huge yeah. risks right well, you got to take uh, risks otherwise it's not, it's not going to yeah. work i mean um I, I come from a from a company or my, my previous company that was i mean trading games you probably know them uh and and they yeah. um you know we had this problem the typical problem in the games industry you create one huge hit and then you try to make the second one and yeah. it usually never works so when i joined the company many years ago i was <laughs> there for, for nine years you know the the company was doing great um, yeah. it's probably not the best pitch for myself now the company was doing great and then, <laughs> <laughs> then it wasn't anymore no but the thing is uh, it, it, there was a lot of money coming in and it was pretty much the opposite problem of what you had um, yeah. but you could feel that you know, they didn't want to take many risks because uh, things were going so well and there was no need to innovate. There was no need yeah, to yeah. change things. It was just okay as it was, you know. If you you knew that the game was going well, if your bank account was full, you know, and you needed a yeah. new one, <laughs> like that. Yeah. So, so um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I went through that journey. Money can mask problems, right? Say again? 
But, but money can mask the problem. Absolutely, and uh, yeah. so things were going well. And then after a while, when you when you know the market is more challenging, mobile came up as a way more important platform. Then all of a sudden, you start thinking about these things and what can you do? What kind of risks do you need to take to innovate and and, and come up with new things? Uh, and I think that's the exciting part, even though it can sometimes be very challenging if you have to go through you know phases like you know, six years of not making money, looking at the bank accounts, having investors probably up your neck. <laughs> so that's yeah. Uh, I mean, my, uh, my, my investors have been amazing. They've always been oh, supportive great. of boys. Um, I mean, during that six years, we were always growing and reinvesting. So we had good reasons for not being profitable. Um, and like one of the big learnings for us was to do games quicker and uh, faster and learn quicker and faster. And that, that was after an experience of making a game for two and a half years in isolation and yeah. realizing actually we could we could find out that stuff up front. Um, but yeah, our, we've been very lucky with investors. They've been great. Index and backed uh, VC and uh, Chris Lee, who's an angel that's bought on a bunch of angels as well. So and that's that's good to hear yeah. because it's not always the case. Sometimes you you know you no. have people like your investors like you have, and that's great. But sometimes you you know it, it makes things even more tricky because you know they are not very understanding of the games industry and uh, uh, kind of you know push you very hard, and that can I think uh, make things worse. Yeah, actually on that subject, I think the most important thing to do with investors is to like when you're raising money from them, you're obviously painting a really rosy picture that everything's yeah. going to be amazing. But as soon as you've raised them the money, <laughs> you kind of need to take them to a room and go, okay, like like we're all we're all in this now, but this is how it really is. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to be really straight with you from now on in every board meeting. You, you shouldn't feel like I'm ever going to hold yeah. anything back. And I'm just going to, you do have to manage boards in certain ways, but I, I really believe that... Um, that, that, that you know, letting them know how it really is is quite important. Not to rattle them yeah. um, and to create noise, but but to, no, but you got to be transparent. I mean, if there's a risk in something, uh, you yeah. Know, uh, they, if I were the, yeah, I would want to know. You know, I, I want to know what's yeah. going on with the business, and uh, maybe there's ways to help. You know. Yeah, and also I think investors don't want to run the business. If you get the right investors, yeah. they don't have the time. Um, they want to. They want to. You know, you, you, I, I bring up problems, but I also bring a solution and, and the plan that we've got and get their feedback. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's quite a it's quite an interesting relationship. And like our investors have made like just one or two comments sometimes in board meetings that have like been like, oh my god, that's a groundbreaking kind of moment. That's where we should be going. That's a really good. That's really good yeah. feedback. Thank you very much. Um, so, and there's been lots of little stories like that, which has been very very useful. Oh, that's that, that's good to hear. So let's let's talk about uh, cars. And I was wondering, your business is built based around cars. You know, you all are yep. are car nerds and, and petrol heads. And so, have you ever considered making a game that's not having any cars in it? Um, we did actually. Top Drives originally had little dots that ran around a, a racetrack. Um, it, it, well, it had a racetrack, so it kind of <laughs> had something in the car scene. Uh, I'm trying to think. We have we have done some. We did a. We've done quite a few things with tanks. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, we've tested quite a few ideas with. Um, so still vehicles of sorts, yeah, but yeah. Um, but that was quite interesting. And we also did uh, a game called Drop, which was a spaceship um, racing to to land on a on a planet. That was fun. Um, but we just couldn't we couldn't figure out how to yeah. how to make that game work. Um, we've definitely ventured off there a few times, but I think it's just a lot easier and more efficient for us to focus on 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 the market that that we're in. 
Um, and so those were very, very early days when I'm talking about the tanks and, yeah. the, and the drop game. So are all the people on your team, are they all like uh, big car enthusiasts or do you also have no, uh, people I, I, that I, are like, ah, oh, I don't care for cars? <laughs> well, I think, I think, um, I mean, personally, I, I mean, I've always like loved cars, um, but I would not call myself a petrol head. I wouldn't know the difference between, you know, there's uh, people I know that can just rattle off serial numbers of, of, uh, of cars. Um, and know the you know the amount of liters that those cars uh, are and, and the size engine and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so but what I've learned from being around this content is it is how creative the car industry is and the shapes and the designs and the sort of love and passion and it's kind of art. I've, I've started seeing it more like art. Um, but I'm not personally a car a petrol head, but the business does have a number of petrol heads in it. So. And it's really important, I think, that we we see ourselves as entertainers for for an audience, um, and um, and 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 that's how we see ourselves. So we don't want to make it exclusively a business just for petrol heads to work in, um, because then we'd we'd lose a load of amazing talent. Um, but we do want to have authenticity in there, so we have enough people that really care about really care about the cars as well that, that injected in there so how do you create this environment that you also attract people that are not petrol heads that are not too much into cars are, are they are they sometimes a little scared to enter that environment i have a similar um a studio that i worked with a milestone in italy and they are for them it's all about bikes you know they're they're oh, all yeah. motorbike enthusiasts I know, I know guys, and uh, yeah. they do the MotoGP games and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and supercross and so on so yeah. uh and whenever i visit the studio not so much lately because you know <laughs> of COVID 19 but uh yeah um you go there like in front of the studio there's like 100 motor motorbikes really because it's everybody is, is like a, a bike freak it's in their blood. um exactly so how do you create an environment that also attracts the the other people that i believe are are important to to the mix yeah i think um i mean being all in on cars was quite a gradual process it wasn't from day one it's just something we it, it's a niche that we found um and so that's that was the first part. So, but the second part is to really, it, like all businesses should be, regardless of what content they create, they should be inclusive, and um, you know, for diversity and like creating a really diverse team um, is is about diverse interests as well, and because that's how you have interesting conversations, you make interesting connections, and. Um, and how do we do, I, I don't know. I think there's some self-moderation going on. So at one point we wanted to have the list of staff on our website with motorbike helmets on or, or car racing helmets. And a few people put their hands up and said, no, that's not cool. You're going to like turn off a load of a load of potential recruits if they see that. Mm. It, would, it would look really blokey. Um, and then at, at times like that, you get, get that sort of light shone on, on on an issue like that you have to go oh yeah actually thanks it's like nice sort of self-moderating team thinking about it a bigger picture um and how we want to be inclusive so um, okay so there, there, there are other things we do like we do track days but they're all voluntary um and I've, i've i've never been on a track day uh before in my life and i went on one two years ago and it was so much fun um so well, where did you go we went to uh goodwood um, and the guys go to Brands Hatch. Uh, oh, cool! Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, and I, I see the photos. There's a, a few guys that drove me around in some scary cars. That was that was quite fun as well. <laughs> I was getting white knuckled. 
uh, holding onto the soil. Um, but yeah, so we, 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 there are a lot of events that go on within the team that um, uh, people participate when they want to. And I think there's quite a few people that, that like check it out just for, for interest sake that they may not be into cars, but they'll yeah. come along to an event as well. Well, it's an, ex- so. it's an exciting uh, you know, atmosphere being on a, a, a track day and uh, yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. It's amazing, yeah. So uh, I want to talk a bit about development um, and, and kind of your philosophy there. Obviously, you not uh, only work on one game; you have multiple games uh, uh, in the making. And uh, so, how do you how do you manage that? What's your structure look like uh, and your development philosophy in general? I mean, you already mentioned that you try to get prototypes and in, uh, into the hands of players very quickly, which is that side of things. But yeah. how do you handle it internally? How do you operate your team if you can't only focus on one game but have multiple things going on? And how does how does it work? Yeah, it's um. The philosophy is pretty simple. We use we um, we focus our development philosophy on lean and agile, and launch early. Um, but how do we build teams? That's really tricky. Um, so we currently have three. Actually, we've got four. Actually, we've actually got five game teams. <laughs> Sorry, forgot my other. Maybe, maybe you find children. a sixth one in the moment. So. Yeah, no, no. We've we've got we've got we've got an external games team that we're working with at the moment, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and we've learned a lot about how to do external development because it's very different than internal. Uh, and then we've got uh, three games teams that are um, got publicly facing games, um, which are Top Drives, Formula One, Manager, and uh, Rebel Racing. And those game teams uh, range between 15 and 20 people. Um, and then the idea is, and this is quite new for us and we're quite excited about it, but the idea is that those those games are either becoming evergreen, and it looks like Top Drives is one of those. Um, and Formula One's definitely one of those. Uh, Rebel Racing, I think they're still trying to figure that out. Um, but but what that team does next is kind of up to them if they wanna if they wanna go into sort of lighter op- operations on the game uh, and start building on new things. It's it's kind of up up to them to sort of prompt that that moment. Um, and and that's going to be really interesting because it's it's truly giving the employees or the teams the sort of voice to to say what direction we want to go in in terms of um, the future of those games. Now it's quite scary because because these games add a lot of revenue to our um, yeah. to our bottom line, but that's the whole point about being quite transparent about where the business is and where we're going. Um, they can hopefully have a have a have a strong voice in in terms of like the future of our revenue and the future of our opportunities and stuff like that so um and then we have a fourth game scene that's working on new stuff at the moment um and uh just watch it that team is absolutely tiny but it's moving incredibly quick with really really fast rapid prototypes um and that team will eventually grow to probably 15 20 maybe more people i don't know depends on Depends on what the project demands. We don't really have a teams must be only seven people or teams must only be thirty people. We just we 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 look at what the requirements are, yeah. um, and we just keep iterating out. And we obviously like to try and de-risk things. So um, by getting the games out early and finding out what the retention is or how many um, like what, what the engagement looks like in terms of a stickiness factor, uh, then that gives us more confidence to reinvest and add more people. Um, do you have like so, a lot of exchange going on between the teams or are they pretty much operating yeah. in silos? Uh... Yeah, the, the, um, the teams we've got now, I think it's three or four floors in the office and each team is on, on their own floor. 
Um, but there's there's like a weekly uh, meeting where they exchange um, what good and bad has happened to them that week. Um, but we don't we don't really force um, a lot of you know you must go and do this, you must go and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, there's I think um, we've got we've got one of our games that's coming up with clans really soon. The feature for clans can be not copied and pasted, but it, it can be the technology can be moved over to the other game. So there are um, there are game teams making um, big advances and features that can be reused across our games. So there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of sort of helping each other. Oh, that makes sense, stuff. I guess. Did you have any central functions that um, on top of the games or yeah, trying to minimize that as much as you can? Yeah, we've, we've, got, um, we've got a team in Canada. So there's, I think there's seven people over there that work a lot on the SDKs and some other mm-hmm. sort of tools and technology that we have behind the games. And they're really critical to keeping our games uh, alive and going. And, um, you know, they've, they've got lots of tech that, that's super, super important to the publishing of the games as well. Um, so they're, they're quite central. Um, and for everything else, we're really trying to make sure the game teams are multifunctional so they don't have any bureaucracy or any sort of inter-team sort of squabbling about, about resources. So we're just trying to make the teams really self-contained mm-hmm. um, so they can operate as effectively as they need to. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, it's good to hear. And I think it's especially even in like a multi-game environment, it's important to to give them the autonomy to, to do this. Yeah, otherwise, yeah. you constantly struggle um, and, and compete over resources in the, yeah, in the team. Yeah, it, it becomes quite a headache, right? So, um, and ultimately, uh, myself and the leadership group, our job is to create an environment where these um, these teams can just do their best work. So, yeah. um, so that's what we're really focused on. And that, you know, that's down to, laptops you know licenses of software um i I remember the days where like having to do things with it departments would drive me mad because the it department (laughs) was there to help you do stuff but it ended up becoming so challenging for it departments because of security problems that that there were always blockers so my mission was like to make a games company where like everyone was focused on on unblocking the games team so they can do great work um and uh, I mean, we're not perfect by all means, but we've, we've, we've definitely solved a lot of my past problems. <laughs> Speaking of uh, just just quickly of, of like the solutions that you use, I mean, I, I guess you have like uh, like every team some collaboration tools like Teams or Slack or anything. Um, yeah, yeah, Slack, for their team. yeah, Slack all the way. Yeah. Um, we we have we have delved and looked into Teams. Um, I've had to use it for uh, for homeschooling, so uh, I feel <laughs> like I'm I'm I've, I've I've got to know Teams quite well. Um, but yeah, Slack is Slack is pretty amazing. It's, yeah, it's the, my tool of choice as well. Unfortunately, we don't use it at my current company, but uh, oh, uh, maybe we get there at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's blown me away about Slack is how much of your culture is transferred into a digital messaging yeah. tool. So like the emojis and it, like these these emergent emojis where certain people are known as being quite like when they get angry they have a certain look to them yeah. and then and then there's a photo posted of an emoji but yeah we, ha- we had all of brilliant. those emojis like uh, people were reacting like with the certain yeah. people in the company and yeah. uh, you know it, uh, since it was in germany we had the german wiggle finger by one guy who did it particularly <laughs> well you know and this was one of the emojis we had there so it was really cool so i know what you're talking about it's a fun yeah. part of slack it's, it's quite amazing so and then there's so many good into, in, integrations into slack as well yeah. so um, so this so is now cool. a Slack sales pitch, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a great tool actually. So shout out to the guys at Slack. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
so um, what I wanted to know, obviously, since you've been in the mobile space now for quite a while, how do you see the market change? Is there is there anything that you see is getting more difficult or something's even getting easier? Is there any major developments that you're currently seeing or that you see coming I think, up? Um, I mean, the big things for me that are going on, are, I still think there's pockets of opportunity out there in mobile where um, there are some really sort of juicy niche audiences um, that you can go for. Um, but I think the chances of starting a, um, a studio that's going to do some, I don't know, RPG game based on Orcs and Elves, sorry, that sounds quite derogatory, but something that's that that could be really cool, but sounds quite generic, I think is quite hard. I think to, mm. to you need, in order to create a mobile studio now, you need a full functioning UA team and you need all this other stuff. So um, I think there are people creating content that's quite, quite innovative um and they're probably getting funding um but i think the other things that are emerging are stuff like roblox is fascinating um you know like my my kids the other day were showing me a dance video on youtube from this k-pop band called um called uh icon and it's quite catchy it got stuck in my head but i i, I said where did you hear this tune and they'd heard it on a influencer video for Fortnite. They would then had a code that they plugged into uh, Roblox, and my son's built a hotel where the the music that you go into the hotel is this icon track. And I was just like, <laughs> the 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 music discovery of that is quite mad. Like yeah. how you like how music now surfaces itself and markets itself to 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 its audience through Fortnite yeah. you know, influencer videos, and then it becomes its own meme inside inside certain guys it's just absolutely incredible and like roblox is unlocking a huge amount of creativity like my son's really into um into uh titanic i don't know why i just think he just thinks it's just terrifying that all those people could drown or something he's got he's got this obsession with the titanic we go into roblox there's a titanic game where you start off as a mechanic in the bottom of the ship and you have to escape the titanic as it's sinking and it's fully modeled out Wow. And some and somebody's created that game, but like me as a commercial CEO making games, I I don't think we'd ever say, yeah, let's go out to the Titanic yeah. audience. That yeah. audience is going to be huge. And I'm looking at Roblox. There's like two hundred thousand players playing this Titanic game, and um, again, it's enabling people to launch stuff really effectively and quickly and get feedback from players. And Roblox is incredible. So, yeah. That's that's the emerging thing. I, I and I think I'm I'm hearing a lot more of investors investing in teams making content on Roblox. So I think the content quality is probably going to start really going up as well. Oh, okay, that's in, that's interesting. So yeah. I mean, for for our listeners here to the podcast and in general attendees of Defcom, you know, might be an yeah. opportunity there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thanks again, Sean, for for doing this. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I hope that uh, the people that are listening to this episode uh, will enjoy it as much as I uh, did recording it with you. Great. Thanks. No worries. Thanks very much, Lars. Thank you for listening to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast, presented by DevCom.Global, produced by Sven Vossi. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Biodynamic, high-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.